wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. And today, some of you have asked, the last few times I spoke, I've deviated away from a series that I had began in First Thessalonians. And today, I'm going to pick back up that series. Essentially, not a real fancy title today, but just simply Paul's Words of Comfort. And the last time I spoke on this was a while back, but it was on the first part of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And today I'm going to pick it up in verses 13 through 18, the last section of 1 Thessalonians. And it's a pretty popular section of Scripture. Many of us have probably read it many times. We've studied it probably. But in this section, this section of Paul's letter, he touches on something. All human beings face this issue. This is an issue that does not discriminate on anything or anyone. No matter how wealthy you are, how powerful you are, how famous, how important or privileged, no matter your age, nobody will go through this life in flesh and blood without being affected by this that the Bible calls the last thing. And that is death. We've all faced this issue. Every single person in this room. We face loved ones dying, spouses, friends and family, and of course even there's people in this room who've lost their children. And of course, eventually, most likely, depending upon when Jesus returns, of course, we will face death as well. And obviously, this congregation in particular has had this happen to us just recently with the death of our brother in Christ, Mr. Reg Nolan, that we celebrated just a week ago, or a little bit more than a week ago, and we'll have his memorial service. The interesting thing about death is that it's not certain when it's going to happen, but it's certain that it will. And we know that when it does, it's a sting, as the Bible calls it. It hurts. We have loved ones that we lose, and it's not easy. It's a difficult process, and it's always been a difficult process for all of mankind. And in fact, when we read the biblical message at the very beginning, we see this enemy enter in into the, into the human domain. And from that point forward, the message was how God was going to provide a way for us to overcome that great enemy of humanity. And that is death. So we're going to read just these string of passages all up front, and then we're going to go through some of these, and I will say that this message isn't meant to be a deep theological analysis of the idea of end times and when Jesus is going to come back, but rather I'm trying to follow what I believe was in Paul's heart at the time, and that is to provide us with words of comfort. In verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, he says, But I 
do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And this section, this chapter is concluded with verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so, as we look at these words of encouragement, I want us to understand that Paul is trying to get us to, to know that we, we're human, we're going to have this happen, but we are not to be uninformed, to be ignorant of death and the true future and hope of believers, and that we must grieve, but grieve with hope. And so, as I kind of mentioned, I think that Paul's primary concern here was comfort of these Thessalonian believers. I think it's twofold in some ways. First, I think that Paul wants to correct any false belief about death. He wants the Thessalonians to have a sound doctrine, a sound belief about the hope that awaits them as believers. And it's for the purpose of bringing about comfort to these believers. Because it seems apparent that some way or for some reason, some of them did not understand this. And that some of them maybe were grieving like those who were not even believers. He wants them to understand, of course, the peace of God that comes with knowing the hope that awaits all of us. The good news. We talk about the gospel message, and we know the gospel message is twofold. It's that message of God's kingdom coming to this earth, but for us to be a part of it, there is a key part that has to happen, and it has happened, and we have to accept it, and that is that death of Jesus Christ that has conquered that last enemy, that has provided a way for humankind to conquer death themselves. So, as I mentioned, Paul, in previous messages, he sends Timothy to Thessalonica because earlier, him, Silas, and Timothy were establishing this church in Thessalonica, and they leave there, and eventually they're in Corinth, and he decides, I want to know what's going on with the church that we established in Thessalonica. So Timothy goes there, and he brings back a report, and upon hearing about the report, Paul writes to them, and he addresses some of the things that Timothy sends back, some of the things that Timothy uh, you know, communicates to Paul that the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians were dealing with. And one of those things, it seems apparent for Paul mentioning this, was that in the process of their absence, since Paul, Silas, and Timothy were not there, some in the Thessalonican church must have died. And Timothy might have observed that some of them were grieving much like those in the ancient Greco-Roman world would have been grieving. And so Timothy brings this report back and here we have this letter that Paul writes. And so Paul uses this metaphor that was common in the ancient world for death, which is sleep. 
In this section of 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses this metaphor for death three times. He says, sleep in Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is a common way that people would describe death in this day and age. And even after this time period, people even today sometimes refer to this as like they're sleeping. But I think it's interesting that Paul uses this word three times because in Paul's mind, when we think of sleep, we know that it's temporary. And I think that Paul, although it is a common use or a common metaphor to describe death in this part of the world in this time period, I think he uses it because he wants them to understand the idea that sleep is not something permanent. For the Christian, we know that there is a resurrection, that there is an afterlife, that there is something beyond this life. And that's what the point of this way is about. That God has this plan, and this plan has continuity with the life that we live in the here and now, but ultimately, it's in this future kingdom that's going to be established on this earth. Now, it's true that people in this time period, they did believe in some sort of afterlife. You can read Greco-Roman mythology, Greco-Roman religions. Thessalonica was one of those places where many of those individuals would have came out of this philosophy. But the idea of there being any semblance of the physical in some sort of afterlife was crazy to the Greco-Roman mind. In their minds, in their way they would think that there was maybe some sort of mysterious recycling of the soul into some afterlife. And in fact, when we read different Greco-Roman literature, we see that there really is no hope for those who have died. And so we see an example of this when Paul, in Acts the 17th chapter, when he goes to Mars Hill in Athens, and Paul starts preaching the gospel message, and he starts preaching about Jesus, and he starts talking to them about this unknown God, and how God has, through this man Jesus, whom he raised up. It's interesting when we read that. We've read that many times. There's been messages preached on that. But the very last part of that part of Acts, after Paul describes this idea of Jesus, the man whom God is going to judge the world, whom he brought up, in verse 32 of Acts, the 17th chapter, he says, or Acts reads, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. Which was really just a polite way of saying, or a non-confrontational way of saying, yeah, you're crazy. Go ahead and get out of here. It was a difficult concept for people to think. And so we have to remember that these Thessalonian people are coming out of that mindset. And so Paul tells us that, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope, as those unbelievers. But what he doesn't say is he doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve. Because in, light, in a lot of ways, that would actually go against, in my opinion, the very nature that God has given us as human beings. He doesn't tell us not to grieve, but rather we are to grieve, not grieve like the rest of the unbelieving world. And we know that the unbelieving world, death is permanent. It's hopeless to stay. And we can see that. And I don't think that Paul's trying to chastise these Thessalonians. 
I don't think he's getting upset with them for, for maybe being in error in the way that they believe. Because I think that Paul understood that death was something that naturally human beings would grieve. Now, I think that everyone here believes that we as human beings were created in God's image and His likeness. And with that comes the ability for us to do things that the other parts of the living creation can't do. It gives us the ability to create, to reason. But I would say that one of the most overlooked, and I'm just going to put it to myself, I guess. I don't want to apply this to anyone else. One of the most overlooked parts of God's nature is just how much of a personal God He is that is characterized by relationships. And we know that we are created after God's own image and likeness, and a part of that is a familial pattern, a relationship pattern. When we're born, we naturally forge this intimate relationship with our mother, our father, our siblings, our family, our grandparents. And that pattern is repeated, of course, through our interactions with people, which eventually results in friendships. It results in getting a spouse and then creating your family yourself, the family with children. And we would probably mostly agree that these relationships, all of us, we have different backgrounds and histories and different circumstances that we we were brought up in, but we would probably all agree when we think back on our life that these relationships create deep social connections that help make up who we are as people as they become integral parts of our lives, resulting in great grief when one is lost. And that's what we experience. And everyone in here, most likely, Even Jesus himself demonstrated this. We know that in John, the 11th chapter, I'm not necessarily going to go there, we see this story of Mary and Martha, and they have this brother that's died. And he loved these women. He loved them in, 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 a, in a God-like manner, and he, he, he was moved with empathy. He felt their pain. He felt the sting in which they were experiencing and Chapter 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. He was moved to take action in this instance. And so I think that when we think about grief, we have to understand that it is, in some ways, a part of the nature in which we were created in. Because God is a familial, familial being. He has patterned us after... A, 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 needing relationships and starting with relationships and, 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 and starting in a manner that creates these deep bonds with each other, with people. And so Paul definitely doesn't say do not grieve, but rather do not grieve like those others do without that hope. The question is, how do you do that? What makes our grief with hope possible? None other than the resurrection of Christ. As Paul says in that second verse that we just read, verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died 
and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And this verse, it's almost like a creed. And historians and theologians that have studied that this passage and other passages of Paul, where he says these things that are very related, it's almost like an early creed that Christians would, would, would say that Jesus died and rose again. And there's no more formulated and exhaustive teaching of this idea than none other than what we refer to often as the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's go there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is because it is one of the most in-depth looks into what awaits Christians, of course, at the return of Jesus Christ. And we know that starting out in this epistle that Paul was dealing with many different things, like he was dealing with with the Thessalonians. He's dealing with groups of individuals that seem to have had several problems, including uh, problems of individuals taking their husbands, or not their husbands, but their fathers' wives as their own wives, uh, problems of individuals trying to take believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to the courts. Problems of people claiming that I follow this person or that person. So Paul's dealing with a lot of issues. And he's even having to, because the Corinthians seem to have been misinformed about the resurrection, and the result of that was that we got a pretty detailed and in-depth look into what Paul has to say about the resurrection of the dead. And so starting in chapter 15, he starts to strive again just like 1 Thessalonians, that creedal formula almost. Uh, and this is beyond the scope of this uh, message, but this, the reason I say that is is that uh, there is evidence that there was early, I don't want to say creeds like we, you know, we, we think of the word creeds like sayings. And then later on they would canonize creeds and they have the apostolic fathers. Those, that's much later. But there's evidence that early on among this way, among the apostles and those original believers, that there was kind of like an uh, informal creed, the Christians would say. And it has to do with this idea that Jesus died and on the third day rose. Now, why this is important is because there's many historians that like to come about and criticize Christianity and say that what has happened was is that these things that we read about, these things that we read about, are actually later additions. So the idea of a Jesus dying and raising, you know, raising from the dead, that's not something that happened. And in fact, that idea came about much later when the New Testament was written. Now, the problem with that is, if this is an early creed, and you look at books like 1 Thessalonians, which has historically been, for the most part, agreed upon as being a pretty early epistle, that it flies in the face of that idea that you have this movement happen one way, and then later, 60, 70, 80, 100 years later, someone or a group of people hijack it and add things to it, like they historically revise what really happened. And so I just wanted to kind of bring that out while I was talking about that. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I'm just going to start in verse 3. Paul says, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That which I first received. That was the, what was going around. That was that, you know, what we would call a, you know, a creedal formula. They didn't call it this, but just the basic teaching 
of this new way. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 5, And that He was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve, and after that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some, again, here's that word, have fallen asleep, have died. Verse 7, After that He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and verse 8, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one, as by one born out of due time. And so, skipping ahead a few passages in verse 12, like the Thessalonians, the Corinthians seem to have a misunderstanding about this idea of resurrection. And it seems that possibly some in the Corinthian church were going around and saying, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and there is no resurrection, almost like they were, you know, influenced by the Sadducees, the group of people, and I'm not saying they were, but that's the group of people that did, did not believe in the resurrection. So skipping down to verse 12, we read, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen? And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Paul's saying basically, if Christ has been raised, then the saints will be raised. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Excuse me, I need to pick it up in verse 17. I skipped a verse. Verse 17, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And so Paul is making abundantly clear that Jesus' resurrection is at the core of the believer's hope. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then we will rise in the same pattern after which He rose. So I want to go down to verse 50 and break into context. Because I'm kind of going somewhere with this, and I want to just bring out, this is a message of hope. It's looking at Paul. We have the luxury of being able to read Thessalonians. But we can also read what he said in Corinthians on a similar topic. And so that's what we're doing. So breaking into context surrounding Paul's discussion of how the dead will be raised and the living transformed, he says in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? 
Oh, hey, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The powerful section of the Scriptures. And when we live out this life, and he uses those words, Oh, death, where is your sting? It sure hits home, doesn't it? Because that's what it feels like. A sting. A sting like none other. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? What's interesting here is that Paul, and I mentioned this in a devotional several years ago, Paul is actually quoting from both Isaiah, the 26th chapter, verse 8, as well as Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, to point out to us believers to the fact that what Jesus has done has paved the way for this last enemy of life, that enemy which is death, to be defeated, to be overcome, to be swallowed up. And what's interesting is that when you read the Old Testament, and you know that many of the contemporary ideas in the Old Testament goes back to what one would refer to as Canaanite mythology, there is actually this idea in Canaanite theology or mythology that death is seen as a hungry enemy which swallows its victim. So death in this mythology was likened to like an entity that would go around looking for its prey and swallow it up. To me that's powerful because what we see Paul doing, what we see him is using that imagery on top of itself. For the swallower itself, death, it's become the final prey of its own sting. The swallower itself is finally swallowed. That's a powerful, powerful imagery. And this victory, of course, we know is both present and futuristic. We know that we will die. We know that we've lost loved ones. We know that we are still subject to this corruptible body, as Paul brings out. This corruption must put on incorruption. This mortality must put on immortality. And we're not there. But we know that we've been given that promise. We've been given that assurance, that hope. And that's what we live for. That's what we long for. And we know that that victory over that last enemy is only possible through the path in which Jesus has set before us. The final repealing of the judgment of death. Going all the way back from the very beginning of days, from Adam and Eve, mankind has been rendered with this judgment pronounced on it. And through Christ, through that path, we can have victory through that, as Paul says, but thanks be to God. He says that in that one of those last passages we just read. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul, we're going to go back to 1 Thessalonians in a minute, but I want us to just notice what he says. He tells us three things. In light of this, in light of this fact, 
wants us to do three things. You see, death is the sting, and there's a way that it's been overcome, but that doesn't preclude us, of course, from living this life and continuing on and on, preaching the gospel, overcoming sin. He says, first, to be steadfast, to be firm, to be immovable. Secondly, do not move. And the New English translation says, to be firm and do not move. And then third, always be about God's work. Always be about God's work. And the promise at that very last chapter says that your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. And it's not in vain because of the resurrection of Jesus and because that results in our resurrection into God's kingdom that has continuity with what we do in the here and now and the future. The use of this word labor, what's interesting about it is that it comes from the Greek word kope, and it in general refers to manual labor that brings one to exhaustion. And in this context, Paul is referring to the work that God has assigned us in this life. And I think all of us would agree that when we read this Bible, that God doesn't, you know, present us with a faith that says, here, accept Jesus, now you're saved, just wait to die to go to heaven. That's not the gospel message that we're given. But rather, we're given a message that we are to be overcomers, that we are to live this life and to have influence for the glory of God to show and let shine through that light in our lives, through our thoughts, through our deeds, through our lifestyles, and of course through our actions, and through our words, the way that we speak to each other, the way that we speak to each other. So going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 through 17, we see that Paul begins to paint a little bit of a picture, a little bit of a picture of Jesus' return, but I, I think that we have to remember here, and I think people get caught up on this, of course in the process of trying to give hope and comfort to these Thessalonians, he does give us some insight, a little bit of a picture that we develop our theology around, that we develop our belief in how this is going to happen. But unfortunately, I think that the problem is that so many people have gotten so wrapped up with when it's going to happen and the manner in which it's going to happen. And what we do know is that he does give us a little bit of a nugget but he doesn't paint the entire picture. And it results sometimes of many people wanting to tease out from these scriptures things that just simply are not there. And so in this section, starting in verse 15 through 17, it's almost like some in Thessalonica were worried and grieving their loved ones that have died, but they were also scared, well, they've died, and, and we're, we're awaiting this return of Jesus. They're going to miss out on this. And we see that that's what Paul is trying to assure them, that even those who have died, Jesus is not going to forget those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul tells them, and what's interesting when we read that first verse 15, he says that he has been given this. I'm telling you this by the word of the Lord. And I like this little note that the New English Translation Bible has when it talks about this idea of this expression, the word of the Lord, that it's a technical expression in Old Testament literature and that the phrase often focuses on the prophetic nature and divine origin of, of what has been said. 
And so what we know from Paul is that Paul, and not just his writings, but even people that have written about him in the New Testament era, such as Luke, is that we know that Paul's not just coming up with these ideas himself. We see that Paul, as we read, or we just read just a few minutes ago, uh, a few minutes ago when we read First Corinthians chapter 15, at the very beginning, Paul says that Jesus was seen by Peter or Cephas, the disciples, even a group of 500, and that finally, verse 8, he was seen by me, Paul saying this, by me also, as born, one born out of due time. And so when we read the, the, the book of Acts, we see that Paul was directly called by Christ himself. And so these ideas that he is delivering to the Thessalonians are not just theological speculations of his own, but things that he's directly been taught by Jesus himself and also by the scriptures that he understands himself. Let's read verses 15 through 17 again. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So those dead and those living are not going to miss out on the return of Christ, on the resurrection of Christ. Clearly, Paul is painting a very dramatic uh, picture and event that all of us look forward to. We all eagerly await this to take place. And so, this depiction, what's interesting, one of the things that we should observe is that there's a few things that are present in what Paul says. One of them is this idea of an archangel, and another one is this idea of a trump. We read this all throughout scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, important events are typically accompanied by shouts of trumpets. We can go to Exodus, the 19th chapter, the deliverance of the law on Mount Sinai. We see that the, 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 the people are trembling because this thick black smoke or cloud covers the mountain and this trumpet blasts. We also see in Psalm, the 47th chapter, verse 5, that God's presence and His universal kinship, kingship, which subdues all the earth, is inaugurated by the shouting of the trumpets. Isaiah, the 27th chapter, I'm going through these kind of quickly, describes Israel being brought back by captivity, brought back from exile, from captivity. And we read in verse 13, So it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown, they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord and then in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And we also know that, going through this quick, but Joel, the second chapter, Joel, the second chapter, verse 1, we read, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord of course, in the New Testament, when we flip over, we see the same thing. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, 
verse 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And just a few minutes ago, when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, we read, In a moment, and the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be there's a consistent message that we see with this idea of Christ's return, the saints being raised, caught up in the air, and this blast of a trumpet, and of course the archangel. Now, I think that it's only appropriate to touch upon one particular topic, because we're here, that is very, very popular among uh, the theological viewpoint of lots of mainstream evangelicalism, and that is the idea of this thing called the rapture. Maybe you've heard of it before, most of us have, and I want to quickly just touch upon that. Paul tells us that those who remain alive at Jesus' coming will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, the word rapture is not in the New Testament. Or not in this section. It's actually a Latin word, and we're going to just quickly talk about that. The word used here in the Greek is harpezo, which means to seize, snatch, or take away. In Latin, this verb is rapture. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but this is where we get the word rapture from. In the mainstream Christian belief, the belief of the rapture is a doctrine which has come to signify an idea that Christians will secretly disappear and that this would happen right before what's known as the Great Tribulation. And so all of a sudden, just to let you know, this is a mainstream belief, and I would say probably mostly popularized by Ken Wahay's series called Left Behind. I think it's 16 books that were written that eventually were put into movies uh, and, and things like that. Now, I'm going to tell you this. If our belief of this not describing a rapture is incorrect, and there is a rapture, and what I mean by a rapture where all saints are caught up in the air to be able to bypass the tribulation, you will not see me complain one bit. So I hope they are right. Unfortunately, I don't think they are, and it's not personal, and it's not. I, I think that it's it's wishful, and they don't just use kids. This is where that word "caught up," seized, snatched away. That's kind of where the word comes from. Eventually, gets into put into the, the Latin Vulgate, and you know, it's the word "rapier," and eventually, you get this term called the rapture, which is relatively new. It's relatively new, meaning it's not like you know, like in the. For the last 2,000 years, theologians, people that have studied the Bible, have been talking about this idea. So, there's two reasons why I think that, and I, I don't have time to get into an exhaustive analysis 
belief system. Uh, and I know people that believe it, and I respect them. And, and, and there is a rapture in the sense. I mean, if you want to say that will we be caught up, yes, there will be people caught up like the Scriptures say. The Scriptures plainly say that. It's more of a timing issue, as I would say. It's more of when is this going to happen? Is this going to happen where kind of like the Tim LaHaye series that, you know, people are flying an airplane and all of a sudden the pilot's gone. And so, you know, that's Hollywood and that's kind of, you know, make it, putting some, you know, belief or books into drama. And, I, you know, we can all get caught up in that and we can sometimes use things in our life, you know, things that we would, you know, imagine, hey, what would this be like? We, we read like Revelation, you know, you, you read, you know, what would a futuristic, you know, battle look like? And you start applying symbols and metaphors to modern uh, concepts and symbols and things like that. We maybe have all done that. But first, one of the things I think is that it goes against what we read in the book of Revelation. Uh, we, in, in, in the New Testament in general, about the idea of uh, believers being ready, being ready for, you know, the, the, the personal sin to rise up, for this beast power to come about, and for these saints that are clearly being persecuted within the book of Revelation. Secondly, I think that it takes the focus off of what Paul is trying to convey, specifically right here, right here in 1 Thessalonians. And that is the hope of the resurrection, that they can find comfort knowing that those who have died before them and then themselves, that eventually that they're not supposed to focus on the, the caught up part, but they're supposed to focus on the meeting of the Lord in the air. And the part that says, and we will always be with him. That's the part that we need to be focused on. Now, I was going to, you know, kind of synthesize this a little bit, but I just want to bring out a quick quote, and then I'm wrapping up. Uh, the Story of God Commentary Series by John Byron. I, I, I really appreciate his uh, commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. I haven't really, can't say Second Thessalonians, because I haven't really read a lot of that part yet. But I just want to bring out this, uh, this quote. He's a, he's a biblical scholar, and he says this about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and there's sections of Scripture that talks about the ideas of snatched away and things like that. He says, based on this word, some have concluded that Paul is referring to a secret rapture, whereby believers will be super, and I can't even pronounce this word, but superstitiously, excuse me, whisked away from the earth just prior to a series of cataclysmic end-time events. But within the context of this passage, that interpretation is not accurate. As we noted above, the purpose here is to explain how the return of Jesus and resurrection are linked together. Not to detail a series of events, more important to Paul and his readers is not the catching up, but its purpose, which is to meet the Lord in the air. I want to really bring out the second part. That's why I wanted to bring this to you. The word Paul uses for meeting the Lord in the air, can have a couple of different nonsense. In the Bible, the Greek noun, apantousis, and its verbal cousin can be used in the ordinary sense of meeting, such as you find in Judges, the fourth chapter, verse 18, as well as Matthew 8, Mark 14, and verse 17. But in a more technical sense, it was sometimes used to describe the way in which representative citizens from a city would go out to meet an approaching visiting dignitary and escort him back to the city. Two insightful examples are found in the Jewish historian Josephus. In one place, he describes the citizens of Antioch going out to meet the Roman general Titus and to escort him back to the city. 
Another time he describes how a high priest in Jerusalem awaiting the arrival or the parousia, as was sometimes referred to, of Alexander, led a delegation of priests to meet him. Two other verses in the New Testament seem to communicate the same type of meeting of Apantasi. In the parable of the ten virgins, the call goes out at midnight to come and meet the bridegroom. Similarly, in Acts, when Paul is approaching Rome, the believers in the city go out to meet him. When we combine Paul's use of parousia, or coming, in this letter to describe the return of Christ and the historical or political setting of Thessalonica, it is not improbable that Paul has created an allusion to the way that some of the Thessalonians participated in welcoming dignitaries to their city from time to time. And so what he's saying is, is that what the emphasis has been all about this idea of being snatched up and this disappearance, this rapture, when really it should be looked at more along the lines of those saints meeting this, the, the, the Lord in the air as he's returning back to earth. And all the scriptures are plainly, they, they tell us that Jesus is going to come back, not stop somewhere and stay 60 years or 70 years, but to return to this earth. And so I just wanted to bring that to you. And of course, I like the way he puts it. He's not, he's not being dogmatic about this, but he's just trying to present what's more seems to be technically or linguistically and textually a little bit more faithful to what Paul seems to be trying to get at here. And so in conclusion, in verse 18, Paul concludes this section by saying, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We must remember that the hope that we have in Christ, because He has defeated death by being raised up from the grave, that He has forged a pattern after which we shall follow someday. That because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that we ourselves will be after that same pattern. And it's going to be, who knows when it is, but we do know that someday at that last trumpet, that there will be a glorious reunion that takes place as we accompany Jesus he brings with him that rule that he's going to put down here on this earth. I want to leave us with these last words. I've actually kind of contemplated them. Just We read them every year at Passover season. And we read the later parts of John and Jesus in the garden and he's talking and he's uh, praying and he's talking about the tribulation that those believers are going to have. And a lot of times we read these last sections and we think in terms of only persecution because this world we live in is against the ways of God. And that's true. That's a part of it. That's a part of it. But I think some of the other things that Jesus is getting at in this last little passage I'm getting ready to read is that in His mind it's not just the trouble that we get from unbelievers, that we get from a world that's, as Steve was kind of getting at, that is more and more against God's ways. But I think part of that trouble is just living in this world and being subject to this carnality that we live in, being subject to this fallen body, this fallen creation, that's subject to diseases, that's subject to tragedy, that's subject to 
all different kinds of things that can befall us while we're living in the flesh on this earth. Jesus says, in the very last part of John 16, in verse 33, He says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 